There is a, another saying, I believe I'm on. There is another saying, and that is, if you don't succeed at first, try and try again, unless you're skydiving. On Sunday morning, I spoke about the corporate anointing and the importance of our gathering together. We don't just gather as a sense of ritual or tradition. We gather because we are worshipers of God. And we are organically connected to Him, the Head. Whenever we gather, there is a tangibility of the presence of God. We can call that the corporate anointing. And whenever you get around people who carry the anointing, there is a transference of that. There's a rub-off that gets onto you. For example, when Kim Clements was alive, and he was a friend of mine. We got saved at the same time. Uh, we grew up in the same city. Uh, whenever I got around Kim, I would start to prophesy with tremendous accuracy. When I wasn't around him, I wasn't as accurate. That's not what I'm saying. But I found the intensity of the prophetic was awakened in me just by virtue of the rubble. We see that with King Saul, when he was around the prophets, he began to prophesy because he was around the anointing. Had he had stayed in the anointing, it would have been a good idea. But it seemed that he withdrew from that tangibility, that transference. If you get into a church where people are filled with the Spirit, because that's what it means to be anointed, God-possessed, God-filled, then what happens is, as we fellowshipping, as we worshiping together, there is a mutual exchange taking place because we are with each other in the Spirit. And then when the leadership starts to minister, there is a transference, not just of the Word, but of the anointing back in that Word and God back in that Word. So our gathering together is not a sense of tradition, an obligation, but of one of the pursuit of growing stronger in the anointing. And what a great way to do that by the gathering of the saints. On Sunday night, I spoke about the anointing on Jesus. He began his ministry at the age of 30 when the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And then the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days when he returned. The Bible says he came in the power of the Spirit and he began to minister in the synagogue saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. He ministered in the anointing. He was sent in the power and the anointing of the Spirit. The oil that was on the head we learnt on Sunday morning is the oil that flows to the edge of the garment. The oil that was on Jesus, our high priest, 
on his head down the beard to the edge of his robes is the anointing that is on us. We are the recipients of that same anointing that was on Jesus, that was on the apostles, that will be on the saints until the return of Jesus. Hallelujah. On Monday night, last night, we spoke about the anointing of joy, the oil of gladness. Jesus was not only anointed with power to preach, to teach, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, but evidently he was a very happy man because he had the oil of gladness more than his companions. He was anointed with the oil of joy. So there is, a, there is an attitude of joy, there is a heart of joy, but then there is an anointing of joy. We call it the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Why is it of the Lord? Because it is from God, because God is a very happy God. That is evident by a few things. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. And we know that His kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not just righteousness, peace, and joy, but it's joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what is in the Holy Spirit? Not just in the presence and the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, and that is true, but because we are connected to Him in the Spirit, there is the nature of God, the personality of God, the power of God, and the presence of God. And so we are not just happy people, but we are a God-filled people. Last night, as we got into the Word, which is what I desired and prayed, was just as Peter spoke, the Spirit fell, and then the Spirit fell, and we entered into the joy of the Lord. And I loved that. I, I wanted that. I believed for it. That's what I felt in my spirit to press for. And God showed up in that way. At the end of the meeting, Pastor Rick got up and he said, you know, some people will call this, uh, along these lines, the work of the devil. And, and, and it's, you know, the truth is the devil cannot give joy. Because remember, the, the apostle said, such as I have, I give unto you. Freely you have received, freely give. You can't give what you don't have. That will make you a fraud. You can only give what you've received. Such as I have received, I give to you. You can only give away what you have been entrusted with. And so, we understand that the devil is a deceiver, and he is a thief, a murderer, and a liar, so he cannot give this joy, this holy laughter. It's not in his capacity. He can steal your joy, but he cannot give you joy. Now, someone will say, well, demons laugh. Yeah, but their laughter is a mockery. There's a difference between a mockery and the joy of the Lord. The one is unclean. It seeks to intimidate. But the other 
is contagious. As I began to flow in revival, and especially my meetings would have these outbreaks of holy laughter and joy, at times it would seem out of order because of the freedom, the expressions of joy. People would jump up and shout. People would run. People would laugh. People would fall. People would cry with joy because they were being touched by the outstretched arm of God. His hand is very generous. He doesn't give us a trickle or a stream, but He gives us rivers who make what? Glad. His rivers make glad. And so we know that therefore with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. So there is joy in the salvation. In fact, it is called, according to Peter, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why is it inexpressible? Because there are some things that you cannot articulate. You can just laugh. And we also know that he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we know that in heaven there are no tears. Why? Because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. I'm just trying to strengthen the doctrine of this, lest someone come and seek to rob you of your experience in joy. When God used me in Illinois, the second meeting, the first meeting was in Chicago in Homewood Full Gospel, where God's presence fell. The second was in a church in Springfield, that church now belongs to Related Ministries. It, uh, it flows under my ministry. Um, there was a pastor in that same city who decided he would educate the saints concerning holy laughter being from the devil. And he wrote out his elaborate sermon. He walked to the podium that Sunday morning and he was about to say, this, what is called holy laughter, is from the devil. And he collapsed behind the podium laughing. He could not get up. And he could not deliver his message. The meeting closed with people filled with joy. That Sunday afternoon, word had got to me about this event that had taken place. And so on Sunday night, I was sharing what I'd heard. And I said, you know, there was a pastor in this town who felt like this, what is called holy laughter. I don't call it holy laughter. I call it the joy of the Lord, uh, which manifests as laughter, smiles, jumping, shouting. It's not limited to laughter. But it's a very good way to get into this experience by laughing, as you said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so I was sharing with the church about this pastor and what had happened, and I saw a hand go up. Being an evangelistic pastor, I said, I see that hand, God bless you. 
I see your hand. God bless you. He said, Maya. He said, I am that pastor. He had come to the meetings to get some more. Praise the Lord. I have had people walk out the meeting concerned. And as I shared with you, I was one who was concerned because I thought, you know, in my mind, everything must be done decently in order. And this just didn't seem to be orderly. People laughing while the preacher is preaching. However, I have since learned that when the Holy Spirit begins to move, the little preachers should get out the way and allow the big preacher to do what he's doing. Now, I will never fake it or try to make it. It's God. I have the philosophy that I find in John the Baptist, let me decrease that he may increase. I was in a meeting in Puerto Rico, San Juan. I'd been there for some time. I shared with you how it began in Puerto Rico. Before it began in Puerto Rico, I was flying over Puerto Rico, and the pilot said, we are passing Puerto Rico on, say, our left-hand side. And the Spirit of the Lord said to me, I will ride on into this island on a white horse called Revival, and you will be a part of it. And that's why when the invitation came, I was open because my, my way of working is I would never go into a meeting without the pastors being aware of what they're getting. Because I never wanted to cause stress or strife. I've had people talk about revival splitting churches. This joy splitting the church. No, the joy cannot split the church. What splits the church is dead heads, pharisaical spirits, closed hearts. When you examine the Scriptures, there is more concerning joy, laughter, happiness than there is on holiness. And we know that it is called a holy Bible. And God is a thrice holy God. And so when there is so much of something evident in the Word, you have to, as a theologian, take note. How do I know that? Because I didn't just go to a concordance. I read the entire Bible verse for verse, underlining every word related to joy, laughter, happiness, dancing, shouting, any expression of joy. And I found hundreds of scriptures. I also researched church history, as I shared last night, finding that, for example, in the great Cane Ridge Revival, where we find our origins of what is called camp meetings, that at, under William Barton Stone, people would come in in wagons camping for weeks seeking God, and there'd be preachers standing on mounds all over the place preaching, people falling under the power, people shaking under the power, people jerking under the power, people laughing under the power of God. The Quakers were known for holy laughter. In fact, the Methodists were known for holy laughter. In fact, Wesley was impressed 
concerning the Lord because of the joy that was found in the Moravians. That's what awakened him to the deadness of his vain religion that awakened him to the message of salvation. David Livingston was persuaded into the ministry as a, as a missionary, as a, a man that would pioneer the gospel into Africa by the happiness and the joy in another missionary. And he said, I want to be like that. I believe it was Calvin's wife who dressed in black garments of mourning that she wore in front of her husband. And he asked her why she dressed in mourning because she said, the way you live, you'd think God is dead. Just throw that out there for you. And so we know that God is a very happy God and that there is joy that is found in His presence. Not just joy, but I believe an anointed joy. We're dealing with fresh oil. We're dealing with a fresh anointing. I started with the corporate anointing. The anointing on Jesus is the anointing on us Last night, the oil of gladness reiterated for you just to make sure that you understand this isn't just an experience, but it is based on the Word and based on the workings of the Spirit. Some people who were touched 28 years ago in the outpourings of uh, Brownsville, Toronto, Rodney's meetings will think, well, maybe the cloud has moved. And I do believe the cloud has moved. I believe the cloud is moving in the way of discipleship, equipping, training, and raising up a new generation of leaders. That's where I believe the Spirit of God is moving now. It is not so much just experience, but it is equipping for a great ground shift that is taking place where we will march through the land with healing in our hand, deliverance and signs, wonders and miracles before the great coming of the Lord. But for that to happen, there's got to be a generation of leaders because the church is led not only by the Spirit of God, but by leaders. And so I believe this is where the cloud is moving. However, what God has done doesn't mean it's over. You can press into this whenever you want, as we saw last night. Many of you have been the recipients of this joy before, and then last night it was stirred up again, refreshed. And I do, I lay hands on myself frequently and just press into the joy of the Lord. That's why I am so strong as a 95-year-old man. It's amazing, brother. You can be just like me. I know that you're at about, I would say, 89 right now, getting close to me. <laughs> but there is joy. There is the joy that brings strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I stay in the joy. 
I am not just happy and have a sense of humor, but I press into the joy of the Lord. I stir myself just like I do in my most holy faith. I stir myself in the anointings. Sometimes I find I have to stir myself in the prophetic because I find that I'm losing my edge. And you reawaken or you redig the ancient wells. And there are wells of joy that we need to redig because this isn't just something that happened. It's available as an ongoing experience. We may not see the same frequency of it because we have other things we have to convey and equip and teach and train, but it doesn't mean that it's not significant or important. With that in mind, I want to get into tonight's teaching. I want to speak about the holy anointing oil. And I'm going to read to you from Exodus. Sorry, I'm just turning there because I'm cutting out quite a lot. Let's go to Exodus 29 and verse 7. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his, the high priest's head, and anoint him. Notice that it wasn't just a drop or a little cross on the forehead, but it was poured because it is representing the abundance of the presence and power of the Spirit, not only on the high priest, but on the priest, and look into Jesus, who would walk in the fullness of God. And then I am reminded of His fullness we have received. And we see that it is He who anoints our head with fresh oil, even in the presence of our enemies who seek to mute and silence us. There is an anointing that gives us the victory, for the anointing will destroy the yoke of the enemy. In Exodus 29, 29, the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, that in them they may be anointed and ordained. So there is a perpetual handing of the anointing from generation to generation because the kingdom of God is always meant to be in the Spirit pointing to the life of the Spirit in Jesus, through Jesus, into the believer, until Jesus returns. For those who believe that the gifts have ceased, they don't understand this perpetual transference of anointing. Because it points to Jesus, and to the church, and to the Christian life. In Exodus 40 and verse 13, you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. Priests minister to God and then from God we can minister for the people. If we fail to minister to God, how in worship 
and in our prayers the sweet incense that we sang about, then we have nothing to give the people. Because what we get from Him, we give to the people. Priests minister to God first, and then to the people. In Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 20, this is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, the tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. Notice again it reiterates and underscores the importance of the anointing being a part of the sacrifice. And so we are to understand that within Calvary within the cross is this anointing revealed. Not only, and I've said this, I'll say it again in Leviticus 8.12, then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. The anointing separates us. This is important where we're going to go in the next few minutes. The anointed life is the sanctified life, is the consecrated life, is the separated life. Separated from what? From the world. You have heard us all preach on the importance we are not of this world, we are in this world. I would like to suggest that we are not of this world, but we sent to this world. And how do we go? We go in the way of the priestly ministry, consecrated. We are not in that world to be of that world, but we sent into that world as anointed ministers of God. In Exodus 30 and verses 22 to 25, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Note the 500 that is important for where we're going. 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon. So notice you've got myrrh twice as much as what? Cinnamon. Very important. These weights are important to reveal the workings of God in the anointing. Then he says 250 shekels of fragrant calamus. So you've got 500, 250, 250. These measures representing certain measures of importance in the amount. And then again, 500 shekels of cassia. All according to the sanctuary shekel and a hin, which is about 0.98 of a gallon, of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be a sacred anointing oil. 
In other words, it will not be for common use. We have bottles of oil. Some of them take these same proportions, mix it, sell it in bottles. They were not permitted to do that in that era, in that time, because it was a holy oil and it was exclusive for the, ta the tabernacle, exclusive for the high priests and the priestly ministry. It was not for the ordinary person. They had anointing oils, but it was not allowed to be the same because that was for common use, for bathing, for anointing. If we remember when Jesus came into the house of the Pharisee and the woman came and washed his feet with her tears and anointed his head with costly oil, fragrant oil for his burial, Jesus said, this should have been done when I came into the house. They broke protocols because they did not honor Jesus. She honored Jesus by doing what ought to be done. The same when the, when the um, disciples prepared the upper room. You remember Jesus bathed their feet because no one assumed the responsibility of bathing the feet when you came into the house. These were normal practices. People had ordinary uses. David anointed himself with oil, symbolizing refreshing, cleansing, anointing. But this oil was solely for the priesthood. This is the God rep recipe for the anointing. I want to talk about these five specific ingredients for a few minutes. The precious anointing oil was to ordain or consecrate prophets, priests, and kings. If we examine these ingredients, the first is myrrh, 500. Myrrh, as you remember, one of the gifts given to Jesus was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a fragrance that comes from the tree it's produced in the way of a seepage of the press that comes from the bark or from the tree. This is rendered and it is melted into an oil and then it is used by the per perfumers. It is a very costly oil. What is important about myrrh is that it is very bitter. This is the product of a tree and it speaks of Calvary's provision. The bitterness, the pain, the agony, the squeezing. So when you understand that the anointing is really the product of Calvary's provision. The product of the tree. The product of the cross. The pain and the agony of the cross has acquired for us this anointed life. Myrrh is a picture to me of the yielded, submitted, meek life. Pressed, crushed, squeezed. 
if you want to walk in the anointing, you have to walk in meekness. Meekness is not weakness. You remember Moses was described as what? The most meek among all. Jesus, meek and mild, we sing in Sunday school. Do you remember that? And of course, I epitomize meekness in my ministry. Just kidding. It's one of the areas I have to work at so much. But it is a, 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 a state of submission to God, of yieldedness to God, of teachability. Blessed are the meek. One of the qualities for the anointed life is to walk in meekness, yieldedness, submission to God. It is the product that is bitter, but it is beautiful in its fragrance and in its purpose, but it comes because of pain, agony, crushing, and squeezing. Our lives are best when they are bridled by experience, training. The anointing is not a game, even though at times it's so funny and beautiful, people are falling and laughing, and you'll see maybe preachers, you know, enjoying that moment. Even though they enjoy in that moment, it is not never a game. It is always a holy thing. It's a holy work. Like Moses stood on holy ground when we minister the word or lay hands or impart, it is always a holy work. It is not for common use. The second ingredient is the cinnamon, which again is the what? The product of a what? A tree. The bark of a tree. The sweet-smelling uh, uh, aroma that comes from the product of the bark of that tree. Notice that it is half in comparison to the bitterness. So the sweetness is only half of the agony. It is from the agony comes the sweetness, but the emphasis or the more is in the agony of Christ's suffering that releases to us the sweetness in the anointing. And so we are always very respectful of the cross, of the blood, of our position in righteousness, in justification. We are always honoring God. All worship is the honor and the worship of God because of the cross, because of the blood. It gives us that access into the sweetness of the Spirit-filled life. One of the things with the tree that is used for cinnamon is it is a very straight tree, um, which speaks of our standing in or our standing straight, our standing strong. The anointing makes us strong. It allows us to stand in the face of hostility, opposition, and suffering. And even in that place, we are a sweet-smelling aroma. 
because we are upright of heart. We stand strong and secure in Him. Do you remember the priest had to be straight. He could not have curvature of the spine. There, uh, speaking, not physically, but spiritually, to operate in the anointing, there must be the integrity of heart, the uprightness of heart, the strength of character, but out of that comes sweetness. The third quality, the third ingredient is the, the reed, the calamus. It is a reed that grows in the swamps and it is filled with oil. For me, it represents a few things. The reed was used as a measure. To me, the anointing is always measured in the Word. The anointing will never exceed the authority and the boundaries that are found in the Word of God. The reed is an instrument of measure. It has the oil. It is something that is extracted from it, but it also speaks and represents to me submitting ourselves to the Word of God in the anointing. I remember in the early days of revival, one man stood up and he said, now that we have the anointing, we don't need the Word. And I really felt like slapping him, you know, in a loving way. Because the authority of the Word abides forever. And the anointing, the gifts of the Spirit will never exceed these realms taught and laid out in the Word of God. So the, the reed is a measure. The oil extracted is used in this unique recipe or compound by the perfumer. But it, um, the reed, when it's filled with oil, the, the head begins to bend. It also speaks of a submitted life, a meek life, a straight life, a submitted life. Submission isn't penalizing you. It's recognizing God's order, God's hierarchy, God's structure. It responds to that. And of course, there is tremendous power in order. God is a God of order. The chaos in the creation, God spoke His word and light came, and then life came, bringing order to the chaotic conditions. And so God is a God of order. The stars, the moon, the tides, the winds. Whenever there is a disaster, there is a break of order, isn't there? And so the order brings stability, growth. And so the reed repre represents to me that even though we're in the anointing, there is order, there is protection, and we ought to submit within the anointing to the Word of God. The fourth ingredient that is used, which is also in a big measure, uh, is um, the cassia, which is produced from the leaf again of a tree. Everything is from a tree, kind of the bark, the tree, the reed. Uh, it is, the cassia is also a sweet-smelling 
fragrance, but it is also used for cleansing. And uh, I believe that in the anointing, when you get in the anointing, it will cleanse your heart, your motives, your life. Um, there is tremendous grace in the blood of Jesus, but also in the anointing, there is a there is a a sanctifying process. I always say there are three agents of sanctification: the blood, the word, and the spirit. They will all sanctify your life. And the cassia, to me, speaks about the cleansing process of the anointing. Not only for those that receive the anointing, but also for those that operate in the anointing, it will have a cleansing effect upon your life. I believe if you get into the anointing, it will cleanse you inside and outside. And I think the scripture that goes well with that is found in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There is a cleansing approach to the holiness that is found in God. The fifth and final ingredient in the anointing is the oil, the olive oil, which is also obtained how? In a crushing. So much of the anointing is found in extraction from the tree from the bark, from the reed, from the leaf, and then even the oil. The oil, of course, we all understand represents that agent that contains the perfume, the fragrance of the myrrh, the cassia, the calamus, and the reed that is all contained and mingled in with the olive oil, that which flows. Notice that it never goes up. It always flows down again. God's order from the head, Christ being the head through his apostles, prophets, preachers, teachers, leaders to the edge of the garment. God is a God of order, of structure, of hierarchy. This is not to dominate and control, but it is just the way the anointing works. It flows down. It never flows up. When, when you get into, and I know this may be a little meaty for this meeting, but some people get ahead of themselves. They think more highly of themselves in the anointing, and then they want to minister to the ministers, but they're reversing the order and the authority. And I understand people want to pray for leaders, and that is essential. But there's a time and a place for that. In the anointing, in the glory, don't reverse roles because the oil always flows down. I, I say this kindly. Sometimes I'm moving down the line, and you'll get some person say, I want to minister to you. 
And I simply say to them, and and this is where the non-meek part of Leon comes out. I say to them, honey, and it's often a lady, sorry. I know that sounds chauvinistic because they move with compassion and sensitivity by nature. And, and, And so I'll say, honey, this isn't your moment. This is when God is using me as an agent to get it to you. Don't reverse the role. Don't try to step into what I'm meant to do for you. You don't understand authority. Now when you leave this place, go give it to someone else. That's my sign. Hello. Okay, I'm going to bring it to an end right now. Thank you. (laughs) Yea, Lord, I hear thee. I smiled at Pastor Rick the other day. He said to me, my anointing is a 45-minute anointing. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to be more humble than Pastor Rick. And I set my alarm for 40 minutes. <laughs> of course, I put 10 minutes on the front speaking and another five on the back speaking. But technically... It was a 40 minutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was just Siri. <laughs> of course, they're always listening to us. Love America. <laughs> As a foreigner, I've got to just say the right thing. (laughs) It always flows down. David said, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. And your pastor and I in seeking God in preparation for these few meetings, we felt like we want to use this as a time of impartation and anointing for you. Hallelujah. 